Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13 teaches us about good teaching, good ethics, and good living. Sorely needed today. In Proverbs 13, we continue to focus on learning some great principles of life. Like wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And experience by way of reason and revelation. And again, what we have here tonight are contrasts between righteousness and wickedness. The wicked this, but the, I'm sorry, the righteous this, but the wicked this. So again, it's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. You know, it would have really been nice and it would have been helpful if Solomon, you know, would have stopped after everyone and elaborated, you know, explained it a little more in detail and illustrated it for us, but he doesn't. And he gives us the principle and he just keeps moving along one after another. So the best we can do is to, to look at each one ourselves. Examine it. You know, go home and read them on your own and examine them and ask the Holy Spirit to, you know, to turn on that light and to pray like the psalmist did, Lord, you know, uh, show me. You know, open your scriptures to me, this treasure. And, uh, you know, let me, let me see what you have in there for me. So, again, yeah, it's best to look at each one ourselves and examine them and finding the importance in them for ourselves. You know, we might have to do a little digging ourselves to find that treasure. And, and maybe that's why Solomon didn't elaborate. And I guess, I know for lack of better thought, is, is making it easy for us. You know, the, the psalmist looked at the, at the scriptures as a treasure. They were a treasure to him. And, you know, when you think of treasure, what do you think of? You know, finding the spot and then start digging and get rewarded by the treasure. And when you know what, when you do that with scripture, you'll be rewarded. Again, the Hebrew says that those who seek him diligently will find him. And, you know, it, it, the, the scriptures don't come to the lazy. They don't open up to the lazy. You know, sometimes we have to put a little sweat in there and, and, and dig them up and, and find that, that beautiful treasure. And there's nothing more rewarding, you know, to dig through the scriptures, to ask God to show me, show me things that I haven't seen before, God, and then get blessed out of your socks. When you, you know, it's so neat when God shows you more than anything else. When, and when you know it was the Lord, you go, you just, it just makes you hungry, it makes you excited, <clears throat> and it makes you want to get in there and, and dig a little more. So let's begin now with verse 1. As we, verse 1 is the truth about scoffers. It's truth about scoffers. And Solomon says, A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Scoffers don't listen to rebuke because they think they know it all. And whoever tries to teach them, if you've ever run across somebody like this, and in this case, it's um, Solomon speaking to his son, you know, his wise son. And, and, you know, sometimes our kids, they just look at us like, you know, oh, well, you know, then we don't know what we're talking about. But uh, scoffers think they know it all. And, and whoever tries to teach them, you know, is basically wasting their time. Scoffers can't find wisdom even if they look for it. 
We see that, you know, ahead in chapter 14, verse 6. Because learning God's truth requires humility. You know what? And it requires saying, I don't know it all. You know, I'm not a know-it. I don't know everything. And it requires an obedient will. And even though Solomon wasn't David's favorite son, Solomon at least listened to his father. And Solomon is an example of a wise son who listened to his father's instruction. Now, on the other hand, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is the example of the scoffer because he didn't listen. He's an example of the contrast as we've seen in so many of these Proverbs. It says in Psalm, uh, Proverbs fifteen twelve here, a scoffer, does, uh, a scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. And the sad thing is, is that the scoffers, they, they cause all kinds of trouble wherever they go. But Solomon said in Proverbs twenty two ten, if you cast out the scoffer, and contention will go out. And yes, strife and reproach shall cease. Verses 2 and 3, we have truth about living. Verse 2 and 3. A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. You know, we've already spoken a lot in the past Proverbs about words. Words play a big part in determining our quality of life. Solomon wrote about the benefit of having a clean mouth. That is, here it says, well-pleasing. Well-pleasing means pleasant to taste and smell. Now, most nations, they have proverbs about the tongue. The Turks say, the tongue destroys greater hordes than the sword. The Persians used to say, a lengthy tongue means an unhappy death. Don't let your tongue cut off your head. Lady Astor's words backfired when she said to Winston Churchill, I love this, if you were my husband, I should put arsenic in your tea. He replied, Madam, if I was your husband, I should drink it. (laughs) Another time, Bessie Bradcock, a fellow member of parliament, said to Churchill, Sir, you're drunk. He replied, Madam, you're ugly. However, in the morning I shall be sober. He's saying, the rest of your life, you're going to be ugly. That's basically what he's saying. So again, words, I mean, you know, the point is we can use words to build or to destroy, to build up or to break. And nothing singles out a person faster than the words that they use. Whether it's at home, work, school, you know, daily conversation and daily situations, and especially in a crisis. Solomon encouraged us to pay close attention to the things that we say. And he also had something to say about the value of having a closed mouth. He says here in verse 3, he who guards his mouth. And so this verse gives the contrast between the closed mouth and the big mouth. Verse 4, Solomon speaks about the truth truth about laziness. Look at verse 4. The soul of a lazy man desires... And has nothing. In other words, he wants things, but he's lazy and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have anything. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Nobody got rich by just wishing they were rich or hoping they were rich. 
You can, you can want all that you want. You can want to be rich all that you want. You can be, want to be rich all of your life and never be rich. You don't become successful by just wanting to be. Paul made that very clear. There were some pious souls who said, you know, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, you know, they were, they were looking for the Lord's return. And so what did they do? They quit working. And Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone would not work, neither should he eat. We are to work. And then in verses 5 through 6, Solomon speaks, about, speaks the truth about righteousness. Verse 5 and 6. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. This refers to inward truth. Now, this is the education of everyday righteousness. God hates what's false. Remember, he said he hated false scales. He hated deceitful people. He hated those who lie. He doesn't like lies. He doesn't like deceitfulness. So God hates what's false. And he can't allow it. It's not only verbal things or verbal lying, I should say, that's meant here. But every kind of deceit and deceitfulness. He says, a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. So the child of God should recognize and deal with any sin in their life. Now, this old nature, man, this, 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 this old nature of ours, it, it lies so naturally. It comes so easily. And, and God says that, that he hates that. And he'll have to deal with that kind of thing when it's the proper time. But again, this old nature, even though we're saved and, and we love God and, you know, it, it, the old nature it wants to come up and it wants to take over and rise up and it does it so easily. And that's why it's so critical that we're in the word of God, we're in prayer, we're walking in fellowship with God so that the flesh doesn't take over and, and, and have its way. The flesh will bring disgrace on other people who have trusted him. That is the one who, who you know, is the false person. Or, or if you've been associated with that person, it causes shame upon you. On the other hand, in verse 6, it says, Living wisely guards or protects a person. Wicked, foolish living doesn't offer any protection to the sinner. And you know what? They're easily overcome with sin. Righteousness is making the decision. It's determining I'm going to do what's right. And it, and, it, and it seems to come from a right relationship to God. God is like a compass. He's like a, a, a signpost. He, he, he directs you and he points you which way to go in this life's journey. Righteousness keeps a person's life on track. It leads them in the right direction. The person who has already decided to do what's right isn't easily influenced by temptation. Verse 7, Solomon speaks about truth, about generosity. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing. And one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. Some rich, rich people are poor, and some poor people are rich. Now, going back to 1977, probably most of you will remember the, the world's, one of the world's most richest men at that time was Howard Hughes. He was worth two and a half billion dollars. Now, he's an example of the first part of verse 7. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing. He's the example of verse 7a. 
Howard Hughes inherited his father's tool company. And he used the profits from the tool company to start a career in Hollywood. And Howard Hughes went on to build planes that he designed at Hughes Aircraft. He turned a small airline into the giant airline TWA. And at the peak of his success, he started to, he just started to go off. He started to withdraw from the world, though he was still in control of his empire. But he started becoming more and more suspicious of other people. And he got paranoid about catching diseases. So he moved to hotels. He closed off whole floors. And he sealed and he darkened all the windows in his room depending, and, and depended on his staff to stay in contact with the outside world. In spite of all of his hang-ups, he still prospered from many of his business uh, deals and, and defense contracts and airlines, gambling casinos and, and other ventures. But in his last years, he lived in his pajamas and he only ate fudge. And to some, that might not sound too bad. But when he died, he was suffering from malnutrition. He weighed about 90 pounds. In Solomon's words here, the first part of verse 7, Howard Hughes made himself rich, but he had nothing. Now, in contrast to Hughes, Charles T. Studd is an example of the second part of verse 7, where it says, And one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. While Charles T. Studd was going to Cambridge University, he got saved under Moody's ministry. Studd was born to wealth, but he gave away his, his considerable fortune, and he went to China as a missionary. There he shocked the British uh, civil service by wearing Chinese clothing, he was eating with the Chinese. He substituted, he substituted Chinese ways for uh, Western ways. And he tried to identify himself with the nationals. His health got so bad, he couldn't go back to China. So he went to India. Later, when he tried to uh, open up Africa from the Nile to the Niger, he led a brave group of Christian uh, workers into the Congo forest. This was his motto. Some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some 18 years later, when the mission he started was overwhelmed with financial problems because of the Great Depression, Mr. Studd said this to his mission board. I would lay before you the absolute necessity of nobody, man or woman, coming out here who does not recognize the absolute necessity of super-sacrifice of self and demand it. If people want pretty houses and elegant furnishings, for God's sake and ours, let them stay home in the nursery. No soldier is worth a rap that is a least bit unless he doesn't care whether he lives or dies, so long as he dies fighting for the glory of the Lord. This man made himself poor, yet he had great riches. Now, in verses 8 through 11, Solomon uh, speaks the truth about life, beginning with verse 8. Let's read verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. We know this life, it is a perilous life. It is a mysterious life. It is a, a, a questionable life, and we don't know what's going to happen. But it says here in verse 8, the rich can pay a ransom for their lives. Because they have the money. But the poor, they won't even get threatened. Because they have nothing that the, 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 the thief wants. 
the rich man, Solomon is saying, they, they have the luxury of being able to buy their way out of many problems. You know, just throw money at the problem and it's solved and, and dangerous, situ- <clears throat> excuse me, dangerous situation. They throw money at it and it's fixed. Poor, the poor, on the other hand, the poor man, you know, he has the advantage of not having to worry about threats from the envious. Why would anybody, you know, hold them for ransom when they don't have anything? Verse 9, Solomon speaks about a prolonged life. Verse 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. A missionary and his family and, and his guys in Africa, they went out to hunt a, a gazelle for a meal. So they parked. And the missionary went out and began the hunt. But the missionary lost track of time and he got lost as well. Now, what made things really bad for him was that he could hear a lion that was roaring nearby. Back at the camp, everybody noticed that he wasn't back from his hunt yet, and they began to worry, naturally. So the guides went looking for him. And while his parents stayed back at the camp to pray for him, they began to call his name. Now, the man could hear them calling his name, but he was afraid to call back because of the lion. So he tried following the sound of their voices. But it was hard to figure out what direction the calls were coming from. So that, and, and the danger got even worse because the lion now was within his sight. And the lion was stalking him. And he figured, naturally, I'm done. I mean, I'm dinner. It's all over. Then one of the guys got an idea. He shouted back at the camp, hey, turn on all the car lights. And his mother heard it and he, she turned on the lights. And when the lights came on, it scared the lion away. And the lion ran back into the trees. And then the hunter followed the light back to camp. The point of the story is, notice what the light did when it came on. It turned the lion away. And and Satan is, the Bible says Satan goes about like a roaring lion. But what is it that turns him away? The light of the word of God. What is our glorious light doing now? He's rejoicing. This man is rejoicing because the lion, the roaring lion, had been defeated. And his people are within sight of their heavenly home. And everything is okay. But the lamp, the contrast here of Solomon is the lamp of the wicked. It will be put out. Now, what is the lamp mentioned here? Well, the Bible. The Bible is our lamp. Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, God's word is the only lamp that poor sinners have in this dark world of sin. And again, we are to be light bearers. We we need to carry the light to them. That they might see that light. And then they might take that light and it might be their light. It, you know, it's our only guide to God. His word It's our only guide to God. It's, and it's really foolish for people to abuse and neglect and ignore God's word. Because in the end, that light goes out for them. And the only light that they can have <clears throat> will turn to darkness. So how foolish it is to neglect the word of God and to look for counsel from psychics and spiritists, astrologers, palm readers, and the like. Verse 10, a word about provoking life, about a provoking life. Verse 10, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Nothing 
provokes God-like pride. We, again, uh, Proverbs 16, top of the list of the seven things that God hates. Pride is number one. He hates pride. Pride was Satan's downfall. It's one of Satan's most powerful weapons in, in, his, in his bag of, of, of deceit. Pride fills Cain, filled Cain's heart, remember? And it resulted in the murdering of his brother. Pride was behind Korah's revolt against Moses. Pride is what called Saul to come against David. Pride was the ultimate cause of Haman's death. We read about the pride of Moab, the pride of Judah, the pride of Jerusalem, the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar, and so on. And God dealt with every issue of pride. When you find disagreement in a group, whether it's in a neighborhood, whether it's in a church or, or a, a church group, the basis of it is usually found to be pride. It's usually always that. Pride, pride is always easily offended. Verse 11, Solomon speaks about the prosperous life. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Solomon is saying wealth from get-rich schemes quickly disappears, but wealth from hard work, it grows over time. In other words, believe it or not, there's a right way and a wrong way to get wealth when it comes to giving to God. We need to watch out for schemes that promise shortcuts to getting rich. Deuteronomy 23, 18 says, You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog, which was a male prostitute, to the house of the Lord, your God, for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord, your God. You see, God does not accept money that's earned by abominable means. You know, it's like me saying, oh, Lord, you know, you know, hey, I'm going to go here to, to gamble, you know, at the casino. And, and Lord, you know, if I, if I hit it big, man, I'm going to give you 10%. Well, you know, he, he doesn't want that. You know, playing the stock market, gambling, it's very fashionable today. And, and, and a survey said that, that, and this is an old survey, more than 80% of Americans see gambling as an acceptable activity. Compulsive gambling, it's a problem. Americans spend billions and billions of dollars on gambling. Look at the poker games on TV. Huge gambling casinos going up everywhere, geared toward attracting the whole family. Gambling is fun. It's exciting. But the gambler is taking an artificial risk that they're going to gain something by chance. And it's always at somebody else's expense. You might win somebody that you're playing with, but you're they're, they've lost their money, maybe to you. So again, it, it's it, it, you know, gambling gives money and material gain the place of priority in life. You know, the gambler turns his back on a good and loving heavenly Father to trust in luck. He's no longer trusting in God to supply his needs, and yet God says, "I will supply all of your needs." Gambling offers something for nothing. It weakens the work ethic and it, become, it can become as addictive as a drug. Many people, gamblers that have been addicted to gambling, have lost their homes, they've lost their character, they've lost their jobs, they've lost their family, careers, everything. And sometimes even their life for the roll of the dice. You know, gambling is a sign of lack of spirituality. Matthew 27, 35. Remember, they crucified Jesus and they divided his garments, casting lots. Casting lots is a form of throwing dice. 
The person who walks firmly on the right path towards his goal is a lot better off in the long run than the man who hopes to reach his goal by some stroke of good luck. A good break. Some shortcut. The easy way. Verse 12, Solomon speaks the truth about weakness. Verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when, he, but, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Psalm says, you know, when, you're, when, when hope is crushed, the heart is crushed. But a wish comes true. But when a wish comes true, it fills you with joy. Remember the two, the couple that were walking to the, uh, down the road to Emmaus? Remember they were sad because of what had happened to their Lord? when they heard about the events in, in Jerusalem, their hopes in the Messiah had been crushed because their, their, their Lord, as far as they were concerned, he's dead and gone. And remember, as they were walking, this stranger, which was Jesus, joined them on their walk, and he noticed their sadness. He noticed that there was something going on that was troubling their hearts. And as he was wa- talking with them about those things that happened in Jerusalem, and as they were approaching Emmaus, where these two were going to stop, Jesus was going to keep going. But they talked Jesus into staying the night with them. So he did. And he ate with them. And it says, as they ate, their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. But here's the thing. They said to each other, did not our heart burn within us while we talked? Well, he talked with us and opened the scriptures to us. So they got up that very hour. They went back to Jerusalem and they found those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. And the two told told them about the things that happened to them on the road to Emmaus and how he was known to them when they broke bread. And their doom and their gloom probably lifted forever. Why? Because they knew Jesus was alive. He had come back. Their hope was restored. That was good news to them. He had taken away their sins and their sadness and replaced it with joy and gladness. And that's what it means. But when the desires come, it is a tree of life. Verses 13 and 14, the truth about law. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the command or the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. All through the Proverbs, Solomon again contrasts righteousness and wickedness. God hates pride. God hates lawlessness. God hates hypocrisy. And that's why God won't accept anything that we do in the flesh. Anything that's done in the old nature. And when I come to Christ, It's not self-improvement. It's Christ replacement. Coming to Christ is not slapping on a label that says new and improved. You know, or, 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 you know, new formula. No, it's new creature. I am made new. Something that wasn't existing before. The Beatitudes is a great example. In chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, when he gave the Beatitudes, blessed are those you know, who, 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 uh, you know, uh, you know, who are meek and those who are, you know, are, are poor in spirit. And he goes down the list, blessed are those, blessed are those. And that blessing comes again when 
my life is replaced with his life. Those Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are what will happen to me or anybody else when Jesus has changed my disposition and he's put in a disposition like his own. It's only what he can do through our new nature that's acceptable to him. He's never going to take any of my, he's not going to take any part of my old nature to heaven. This old nature, this corrupt old man, he can't get into the presence of God. I have to put on Christ. I have to put on the righteousness of Christ in order to stand before God. Because there will be nothing of sin, nothing that's defiling in heaven. And God makes it very clear that what he wants is him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the way we all have to come to God if we want to be accepted by God. A contrite spirit, one who trembles at his word. This is the only way that we can come to God if we want to be accepted by him. We can't come in pride. We can't come through uh, uh, good works. We can't come through any merit of our own, anything that we've done. It's all about what He's done already. What He's done for us. And so, again, we don't dare despise His Word nor His commandments. You know, we'll never see the kingdom of God if we do. And then verse 15 and 16, truth about learning. Verse 15 and 16. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. In other words, a person with good sense, they're respected. But a wicked person, they're headed for problems. They're headed for trouble. Wise people think before they act. They think before they speak. Not fools. They even brag about their foolishness. Proverbs 15, 28. Solomon said, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. In other words, he thinks carefully before he answers anybody. Before he makes a move, he thinks about it. But it says, the mouth of the wicked just pours forth evil. We need to learn how to gain respect and we need to avoid being foolish. The wise man, the wise woman thinks carefully about their decisions and they think about everything that they do. If I do this, what will happen? What about this? They think about the ands and the buts and they think about all the possibilities before they make that move, before they open their mouth. But a fool doesn't do that. And it doesn't take long for everybody to see their thoughtlessness, their carelessness, their foolishness. Verse 17 speaks about truth, the truth about negligence. Verse 17. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. In Solomon's day, kings depended upon their messengers for information about their country. And their messengers, the king's messengers, man, they had to be trustworthy. 
Because if they receive faulty information, it could lead to serious problems. It could even lead to bloodshed. It could lead to war. Reliable communication is still important. If the message that's received is different from the message that was sent, you know, and it can be in marriages, it can be in business, it can be in world affairs, it can all break down. So it's important to choose your words carefully and to use them in a timely manner, in a fitting situation, and avoid reacting until you clearly understand what the other person means. And one of, the most, one of the important factors in communication is listening. Listening. So many times we are listening to the other person talking to us. And we're not really listening to what they're saying. We're waiting for our turn to talk. We're thinking, oh, you know, when are they going to get done? You know, you know, you know, wait, till I, wait till I get, well, I'm just going to let them have a piece of my mind. And then when they do, do, do you understand, understand? Well, yeah, yeah, I understand. But let me tell you. And that's why both people go away with the problem unsolved. One was talking, one, was, wasn't, one wasn't listening. So the communication process wasn't completed. And remember... Two ears, one mouth. We should be listening twice as much as we're talking. And so communication, again, Proverbs is just filled with good you know, lessons and, and teachings about communication. But we need to clearly, we need to listen clearly and understand what the other person means, what it is they're trying to say. Verse 18, truth about lowliness or humility. Verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Humility. God says a lot about humility in the scripture. Some people are poor because they refuse good counsel. They don't want to take the good advice. They're too proud to receive good advice. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. But receiving correction results in honor. And being open to advice is mentioned often in Proverbs. Verse 19, truth about desires. Verse 19, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. Whether a desire is a good one or a bad one depends upon the desire, the nature of the desire. What is that desire? It's very satisfying to, again, achieve sensible goals. But not all goals are worth pursuing. You know, when you set your heart on something, when you really want something, when this is something that you really desire, and I, I think of things in the past where this is, you know, this, I, would, I would justify why and how I can get this and why I should have that, and, and, and I really wanted something... When you really set your heart on something that you want, you might lose your ability to assess it honestly. Your desire may blind your judgment. And, and, and you know what? It, it, a lot of times, in, let's look at in relationships. 
And I've seen them over the years when a, a couple wants to get married. And, you know, the, the, the person they want to marry, there are, there are red flags. And their friends will tell them, you know what? I don't know. Maybe you should wait some more. Oh, no, you know, they're, they're, they're almost saved. Well, it's like almost getting out of fire, but you got burned up in it. You know, you, you, you didn't make it. But, you know, well, you know, you know it, I, I, they're coming around and I know it's going to be okay. And, you know, I'll get them to change or I'll get her to change. And, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're moving forward in a one unwise relationship. Maybe it's, maybe it's something you want to buy. You know, and I have a weakness for cars. But I've got more sense about that today. I see how, anyway... But, you know, whatever it is, oh, man, I, I really want that. It's this big screen TV or that car, whatever it might be. You know, it, it, it just might, it's just something that doesn't make sense or it, it's, it's a, waste, a wasteful purchase or it's a poorly thought out plan. It sounds good, man, I want to do this. Well, have you thought about it? Well, no, but, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. Faithfulness is a virtue, but stubbornness isn't. Verse 20, truth about relationships. He who walks with wise men will be, will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. You know, we've heard the, the, the saying, we become like the company we keep. Birds of a feather flock together. And how much time do we spend what, you know, telling our kids when they're young, watch out who you hang out with. Be careful. You know, our friends and our associates, they affect us. And sometimes it's in a bad way and it can be in a good way. Sometimes very deeply. But we have to be careful when we choose our friends. Spend time with people you want to be like. Because you and your friends will surely grow to resemble each other. And, and when people need advice the most, who do they usually go to? Their closest friends. They usually go to their friends first because they accept them. They like them and they usually agree with them. But that's why it might not be the best person to go to to help you with a tough problem because they're probably going to tell you what you want to hear. Because our friends are so much like we are that they may not have the answers that we haven't already heard and need to hear. Instead, we should look to older people and wiser people to advise us. And that's what Rehoboam's son, Rehoboam's son Solomon's son, was, was told to do. Go speak to the elders. And he said, nah, he said, I'm going to go to these young friends of mine who I've been hanging out with. And they gave him bum advice. And they messed them up. Wise people have experienced a lot in life. They've experienced a lot of life. They've been down many of the roads that, that maybe you're, you're, you're preparing to go down. And they've succeeded and they've avoided the pitfalls. And they're not afraid to tell you the truth. And isn't that what we need? We need the truth. Who are the wise in your life, who are the godly in your life who can warn you about the traps of the head? Verse 21, truth about lawlessness. 
Verse 21, evil pursuers, I'm sorry, evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. When our life is over, uh, and when all's life is over, sin has to be paid for. But for the Christian, thank God, Jesus paid that sin for us. He paid it for all mankind. But those that don't know Christ, they will have to pay for their sin. We reap what we sow, Paul said. And, there, and there's no getting away from it. Not, no one's going to escape it. Payment not always come in this life, but it will come. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But either way, it will come. And what we have, what we have sown, what we have earned is always paid in full. Now, what we've earned with Jesus Christ, that's not going to be paid usually until we get to the other side of the grave. At the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus will make sure that good is repaid to the righteous. Verse 22, truth about legacies. Verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Solomon says good people have an inherit and have an, leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. But the sinner's wealth is going to be, uh, wealth passes to the godly. God's people, remember when they, when, uh, when God's people inherited the wealth of, uh, they inherited the wealth of, of the sinner when Israel defeated Canaan? The wealth of the sinners were stored up for centuries. And it was given to the just. Verse 23, truth about labor. Much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for lack of justice, there is waste. The poor are often victims of an unfair society. We see that today. A poor man's soil might be good, but then unfair laws are made, and they rob him of his own produce. And I see that happening with a lot of farmers today. They have water cut off to them because there's some little bug over here that, you know, hey, we want to spare that bug's life. And now, because of the laws that are written, they can't produce any crops. This proverb doesn't take poverty or injustice lightly. It simply describes what often happens. And we should do always what we can to fight injustice of any kind. And the church needs to stand up with the rest of the world to fight injustice of any kind. Our efforts may seem like it's not enough. We might think, well, we're just a small bunch of people. What are we going to do? But here's the thing. It's comforting to know that in the end, God's justice is going to win out. It's going to win out. Verse 22, we have the truth about love. I'm sorry, verse 24, the truth about love. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly wow this is it's not easy for a loving parent to discipline a child but it's absolutely necessary the greatest responsibility god gives us as parents is the training and the guidance of our children it's not the school's job it's not sunday school's job it's not the the babysitter's job it is my job Lack of discipline puts parents' love in question because it shows a lack of concern for the character development of their children. Disciplining children helps to avoid disaster down the road. 
And without correction and discipline, children grow up with no clear understanding of right and wrong and with little direction to their lives. Again, and the scripture says, disciplining our children, that's an act of love. The father tells us that in, in Proverbs three eleven through 12. He says, uh, the, the psalmist said, My son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord or detest his correction. Notice, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. But all of our work, all our work can't make them wise. It can only encourage our children to seek God's wisdom more than anything else. I was looking back through some notes that I had on this proverb, and I, and I found this, and it's, it's an old article that this retired Army Major General, Paul E. Valley. But I read it, and what he said then is even more so today. He said, we are seeing a rash of mass shootings in schools and public places all over the world. He said, it has nothing to do with guns. We've had guns for a long time. But there's a direct correlation between the increase in violence and the gradual degradation of morals, ethics, and parenting. We are cultivating mental illness in our society. Parents allowing TV and video games to increasingly babysit their children. Even though both have become full of unnecessary violence. A New York Times study on rampage killers found that some of them were into violent video games. Research shows that violent video games and TV desensitize people and promote aggressive behavior despite claims to the contrary. A research scientist at the University of Michigan found that that TV was responsible for 10% of youth violence. Parents are ignoring their children so much they don't even see the warning signs that something is wrong. The New York Times study found that 63 of 100 rampage killers had made threats of violence before the event. Parents are no longer taking their children to church where they would learn stability and morals. Fewer than 20% of Americans Americans now regularly attend church. And every year there are fewer churches across the United States even though the population is growing. God and morality have been taken out of the public schools and replaced with political correctness, non-judgmentalism, and I put this in gender uh, gender identity, uh, critical race theory, police are bad, our country is bad. Public virtues are no longer taught in today's schools. And people who don't go to church are more likely than churchgoers to have stress and to be less optimistic about the future. When parents split up there's no fa- and there's no father to take the children to church regularly, the children are much less likely to become regular ch- churchgoers than if their mothers regularly takes them. I mean, this was several years ago, but it is right on target today. Verse 25, truth about leanness. Verse 25. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. We're going to close here with verse 25. The good man always has enough to take care of his needs. Because his wisdom and his self-control and his diligence helps his well-being. It helps him to live. And God blesses what he has. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Notice, I shall not want. Psalm 34, 10, the psalmist said, The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any 
good thing. The wicked can expect to lack. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.8, Because his desires are never satisfied, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. But it's God's foreknowledge. It's God knowing everything that orders these different results. And what we do with the Lord and what we do with His Word determines our well-being. Jesus said not to worry. He says that, that, that the Father knows what we need before we even ask for it. He says, he says to have faith that the Father will supply all of our need. To put Him first in the kingdom of God. And, and He'll supply all of our need. Paul said again that, that, that He will supply, not to be anxious for nothing. Because God is the one who will take care of every need of our daily life. But we have to place that faith in Him. And His Word is that signpost. It is that light that points us to Him for all things because He is adequate. He is a wonderful provider. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank you for the contrasting problems here between righteousness and wickedness, Lord. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for taking care of us, God. And, and, and David said he never had seen God's people begging for bread. He takes care of us, Lord. It might not be what we want, but it will be what we need. And Father, we just look to you now and Open our hearts to your word, God, and help us to be humble in hearing your word, God, and listening to the Holy Spirit. And Father, putting our minds upon you and in our hearts, allowing you to, to replace our life with your life, with your disposition, taking away our disposition, God. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we give you honor and glory. And God, we pray that you continue to watch over us, continue to lead us and guide us into your wonderful truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.